Well, hey, everybody, if you're here in the room or joining us online, it is so great to be with you. And before we go any farther, uh, Michigan State fans. All, I'm watching the game. People are like, oh, man, you must have been so pumped. I'm like, no, I kind of wanted Sparty to lose, but not like that, because that means that Ohio State is terrifying. So unless you're like from the state of Ohio, we need you pulling for the Wolverines next weekend in Ann Arbor. That's what I'm saying. So. Yeah, things do not bode well for our heroes. But uh, you may also notice that for the first time in my entire preaching career, I have a pulpit. <laughs> kind of finally made it. Actually, we're having a technology issue, and that's why. But that's okay. We're moving on. Um, as many of you know, we're in a series called Seven. And in this series, we're exploring seven letters that were written to churches in seven ancient cities, all located in modern-day Turkey. Here's a map to kind of give you a sense of what we're talking about, the region. We're just across the Aegean from Greece. And the letters were recorded for us in the last book of the Bible, a rather mysterious document called Revelation. Uh, that, as we've said all along, um, can be a bit challenging to read. So in the series, my goal is to sort of show you what those first readers, or those first hearers, probably, probably they read these, uh, what they would have seen in the letter we call Revelation, and then talk about what it might mean for us 2,000 years later. All right, so with our time today, we get to explore the sixth of the seven letters. This one was originally attended for Christians living in the ancient city of Philadelphia. And as we do each week in the series to get you going, I want to give you a 30-second video of what the site of ancient Philadelphia looks like should you pay it a visit today. So check this out. Now, as you may have noticed, you're like, dude, where are the ruins? <laughs> there aren't any in Philadelphia. They're unexcavated and basically under a modern Turkish farming town. But see, in the first century, uh, the town of Philadelphia was right at the heart of wine country. Think like Napa Valley for the Roman Empire. Uh, and it was also a town that was plagued for like generations by a series of absolutely devastating earthquakes and tremors. In fact, historians uh, suggest that about two decades before the time of Jesus, a series of tremors completely demolished the city. And in fact, there was a Greek historian by the name of Strabo who was writing around that time, and he gives us this description of Philadelphia. He writes, Philadelphia has no trustworthy walls, like, but daily in one direction or another, they keep tottering and falling down. So, so not surprisingly, like people moved out of the city and into the midst of the wine country. Um, and, but, but there were attempts to rebuild the city. In fact, in response to all this damage, there was a Roman emperor by the name of Caesar Tiberius who offered tax relief for five years to help the city rebuild. Um, and to thank him, the people of Philadelphia actually renamed their city Neo Caesarea in his honor until he died. And then they changed the name back to Philadelphia. Right. Uh, then there was another series of earthquakes that left them in need of additional help, and they thought, well, it worked the first time, so we'll try again. So the city leaders reached out, uh, solicited, and received uh, more help from a Roman emperor by the name of Vespasian, and to honor him and thank him, they renamed their city 
renamed their city again. This time they called it Flavia in honor of his wife. And they did that until he died. And then they changed the name back to Philadelphia. All that to say, like, if you lived in ancient Philadelphia, your town's name was a lot like your life. Uh, Two words come to mind, insecure and uncertain. Like, walls are falling down as you walk to the market, and you may have lost your dog along the way, right? And, And all that trouble was before the days leading up to the writing of the document we call Revelation, because in the years leading up to the writing, another Roman emperor, this one named Domitian, issued a decree that 50% of the vineyards in and around the city of Philadelphia were to be uprooted to make space in order for Rome to grow grain to feed its army. Uh, Unfortunately, Domitian's political needs were greater than his working knowledge of agriculture uh, because the soil around Philadelphia is volcanic and you can't grow grain there. And, And consequently, within months, the economy of the city of Philadelphia was completely devastated and life became even more insecure and even more uncertain. Well, now, focusing in on the people that we're discussing in this series, uh, you need to know that life for followers of Jesus in Philadelphia uh, was additionally complicated. I mean, if they came out of a Jewish background, they found themselves ostracized from the synagogue and from the community of their origin. Like, you say yes to Jesus, and you've said no to us, and so you're out. The door of the synagogue is shut to you. And if you weren't Jewish, then you were viewed as suspicious and unpatriotic because, I mean, followers of Jesus didn't go to the temple of the Roman emperor and offer worship, which again was seen as an unpatriotic and dangerous thing to do. All that to say, life for early Christians living in the city of Philadelphia was exceedingly complicated. So it's really not that surprising when we read that Jesus begins his message to these early Christians with these words. He writes, or he says, I know that you have little strength. Like, life is hard for you. You are suffering. But then he says, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. In other words, Jesus says to them, I see you. And I know that life is hard. And I know you've been marginalized with people you've known your whole lives. And I know you have little political or economic leverage in your community. And I know you've lost influence in your city because of your faith in me. Yet, he says, this is amazing. You have not turned your back on me. And what's clear to me in this passage is, is not only were the followers of Jesus in ancient Philadelphia suffering, they were suffering well. And that's a, that's a big deal. That's a big difference between suffering and suffering well. I mean, you, you know this, right? I mean, but not everybody who suffers, suffers well. Don't nudge the person next to you. It's awkward when you do that, right? But not, not everybody who encounters a challenge in this life suffers well. It's true for people in general. I think it's especially true for people of faith. See, because there's a response to suffering that, that seems to push people towards God and can be catalytic to their faith. And there's another response to suffering that sort of pushes people away from God and can be toxic to their faith. I mean, I think of friends who've traveled through eerily similar challenging seasons in this life, and they've responded in very different ways. I mean, maybe a key relationship implodes, or they have a lengthy struggle with infertility, or like a business they've spent a decade putting together and sacrificing to build sort of has to shut down in the midst of a pandemic. And some of these friends emerge from their challenge with a faith that I would just call inspiring. And they really did. Somehow through the heartache and through the struggle and through the pain, they were able to draw near 
to God. They, they sought comfort from God and they received emotional provision from him that left them well, even more committed to following Jesus on the other side of their challenge. And when we've met for coffee and I've noticed this in them, I said, man, what happened? They said, you know, I wouldn't wish what happened to me on anybody. But honestly, I'm telling you the trial that trial, that challenge, that, that struggle brought about the greatest season of spiritual growth I have ever experienced, bar none. I grew in ways that I simply don't grow when everything is up and to the right and comfortable. But see, of course, that's not everybody, is it? I have friends, you have friends, who've traveled through nearly identical seasons in life, challenging seasons. And when you meet them for coffee and you say, man, it feels like you used to have a pulse in your faith and it seems like that pulse is fading or maybe even gone, they would say, you know what? Yeah, during that time, my faith, I mean, it sort of died. I mean, I went through this, this process of, of, of kind of releasing it. I mean, I, I started by praying when the struggle first hit. I was like, God, I've been faithful to you. I've been doing everything that I know to do, at least I think I've been. I mean, I've been praying and I've been attending church and I've been giving and I've been serving. I'm doing all the right things. It wasn't supposed to be like this. Why would you let this happen to me? And then those questions go to, you know, I thought you loved me. I thought you cared about me. And like the challenge they were experiencing sort of Became cons they, they became consumed with unanswered or maybe even unanswerable questions that start with the obvious one, why? And eventually these questions overwhelmed their faith. And it's kind of strange when you stop to think about it. I mean, two followers of Jesus experience very similar situations and one person's faith grows while the others quickly erodes. I mean, I've been a pastor for over 20 years. I'm telling you, the reality of that is undeniable, but there's a question that flows out of it, and it goes like this. What do we do with that reality? And here, here's the thing. Um, I, I mean, I'm convinced that when we enter seasons of suffering, of whatever flavor, when we enter seasons when things simply are not how we want them to be, I, I think we choose our response. Now, to be clear, we don't get to choose, you know, when and how we suffer. We don't get to pick the flavor of emotional discomfort in our lives. But we do get to choose how we respond, whether we lean towards God and choose to trust him even when it doesn't make sense, or we lean away in frustration, which I would argue is, is more often the natural response. And I say all that to say, like, when we read Jesus' words of encouragement to these Christians living in ancient Philadelphia, what is undeniable is that somehow they have made the choice as individuals and as a community to suffer well, they had endured an extended season of challenge and they hadn't turned away from their faith. And I'm telling you, if I'm honest, I want that to be true for me. And my suspicion is you want that to be true for you. So, so the question that sort of hangs in the air over this observation, you know, is there a way for us to keep our, lives, our, our, our hearts alive to God in seasons when we feel abandoned by him or maybe betrayed by him or deserted by him? How in the world do we do that? And it's a great question because in the end, we will all suffer. The only question is how we will respond and whether it's possible to grow in our ability to suffer well. All right, now with the rest of our time today, what I want to do is show you what else Jesus says to these early Christians. And I want to unpack because what he does as he moves forward here is he actually encourages them. After saying, you're doing great, 
even in the midst of a struggling time, he said, I want to encourage you with three images. And I want to go through them one by one because honestly, I think Jesus offers us some clues through these images about how to best navigate seasons where we're confused and frustrated and disappointed. And again, his encouragement revolves around three images. They are um, the open door, the crown, and the pillar. So what we'll do is we'll unpack them one by one. So first, let's talk about the open door. Here's a, a picture just to kind of get you acclimated. It's a door of access. It's a door you walk through and you've exited one space and entered another. Here's what Jesus says, says to them. He says, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. And scholars love to exegete that. Basically, Jesus is saying, you know, it's me, resurrected Jesus, and I'm in control of the universe. He goes on to say, what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. He goes on, he says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. So it's like Jesus speaks to a church going through a time of insecurity and uncertainty. People who've had the doors of the synagogue closed to them. People who've had doors of opportunity closed to them because of their faith in Jesus. And he gives them a powerful word of encouragement. He basically says, my door is open to you. And it is the most important door of all. It's the door of faith through which you walked when you placed your faith in what I accomplished for you on the cross and through the resurrection. It's a door that once you walk through it, you're given a new identity as a child of God. And I love that he says, and it's a door that no one can shut. It's like Jesus looks to these people that are struggling and he says, listen, they've pushed you out, but I've brought you home. I can't, I, I can't help but wonder if like when the first Christians heard these words, these suffering Christians, I can't help but wonder if some of them started to weep. I mean, for people living through insecure and uncertain times to be reminded of the fact that the one who has claimed them will never let them go. Everyone else can reject you. Jesus is like, I will never reject you. That had to be moving to them. It's like Jesus wants to say to them, listen, I know life is hard right now, but you got to hear this. I've got you. You belong to me now, and you belong with me now. So that's the first image. It's the image of the open door. A second image Jesus uh, leverages is a crown. He says it this way. He says, behold, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about crowns, I think of the Netflix series, The Crown. Who's with me? Yeah, right. And don't judge me. My wife, Sarah Ann, really likes it, wanted to watch it, and I'm trying to be a good husband, okay? So sometimes we watch my stuff. Sometimes we watch her stuff. She points out that you can only watch so many home improvement shows before losing your mind. And I'm just saying, everyone keeps me completely enraptured. There you go. But The Crown, if you've seen it, the title package sort of takes you on this journey cinematically around a golden headband encrusted with precious stones. And for most of us, that's what we think of when we think of crowns. It's like headgear for royals, right? Um, but see, in the first century, the term crown was most often used in athletic competitions. So let me explain. Every large Roman city had a stadium. And I took this picture when my wife and I were in a, a town called Aphrodisius, which is in Turkey. Uh, we were there in August, and it's a beautiful, striking thing. Aphrodisius is, of course, the city that invented the Afro. <laughs> See, Randy didn't think you'd laugh at that, and you did. I'm so proud of you. So he said as a backup joke, 
So this is me with Bob Ross's hair. What do you think? I'm just saying, we're working on stuff around here all the time. Uh, anyway, in the Roman Empire, stadiums were where people would gather to watch athletes race and compete, uh, you know, foot races and boxing matches and javelin throwing competitions. And the winners of these various events would always receive a crown. And normally it was like a wreath made of some sort of local greenery. Now, you may recall uh, the 2004 Olympics where Michael Phelps pretty much ran away with everything. You know what I'm talking about? Like eight or six gold medals and he captured the world's attention. Uh, what you may not remember is that when he was presented with his gold medals, he was also presented with a crown as a way to sort of honor the rich tradition of the ancient Greek games. All that to say, when Jesus says to these Christians in Philadelphia, hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown, like he's leveraging an image from athletics. He's saying, listen, you've never thought about it this way, but your life is like a race and you're doing great. You're running well. It's like, keep pushing, keep driving. Don't stop believing Hold on to the feeling. <laughs> okay, brief aside. If you're new around here, we started this service with an epic song from the police, and that was a reference to Journey. We're crushing it. Okay, there we go. So um, did you notice that Jesus says, hold on so that no one will take away your crown? And that's a little bit eerie. At least it is to me. Like, what in the world is Jesus talking about? The crown, this crown is something that, that can be given, and then it's something that can be lost. And, and so you might be thinking, well, what is that? And so I did a bunch of research this week, because that's what I do. And I'm confident that what Jesus is saying here isn't, it doesn't have anything to do with salvation. Like salvation is that door through which you walk that can't be shut. It's God's goodness to us that brings about salvation, not our faithfulness to him. And so Jesus isn't saying that if they struggle with their faith, they might lose the opportunity to spend eternity with God. I think what Jesus is referring to here are rewards that he plans to give people who suffer well. Not just people who suffer, but people who suffer well. And so he encourages these Christians in Philadelphia to hold on because he has something for them at the end of their race, at the end of their lives, that's going to be worth it. And I know what you're thinking. What is it? I have no idea, but Jesus is clear that whatever it is, it's going to be worth it. So he says, press on, keep moving forward, keep fighting for your faith, keep leaning in the direction of God, and then at the end of your race, you will receive a crown. Now, what's really interesting is that um, of these seven letters, only two of them are given with no correction. In other words, uh, you know, five of these churches receive correction from Jesus. You need to start doing this or else. You need to stop doing this or else. These two letters, and the one to Philadelphia is one of the two, um, no correction at all. In fact, if you read it carefully, you'll see that the Christians in Philadelphia are really only given one command. Jesus says to them, um, hang in there. Hold on. And that reality that there is no correction, there's just this instruction to hold on, it communicates something powerful to me. Because I think if Jesus spoke those words to them in their suffering, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to imagine that he'd do the same for us during seasons when we're suffering. 
he, he would tell us to hold on, to hang in there, to hold on to your faith, to lean towards God. And maybe that's something that a few of us need to hear this morning, especially as we enter the holidays this week. And for a few of us, you know, we would confess in an honest moment, things in our families are relationally impossible. And we're about to gather around a table, a common table, and, and share thanks. And there's like a whole list of stuff that you've already kind of predecided not to talk about. Because everything is just more confusing right now. And there are, we're going to be with people that we love and people that can be relationally impossible. So, so maybe if that's you and you're staring down this week, like the thing that gives you the most anxiety is not the checkout at Meyer, right? You're like, I, you know, it's what comes after all the food is, is prepared. If that's you, maybe just words from Jesus to your heart, just hold on. Keep moving forward, keep fighting for your faith. Or maybe you're going through a season and, and you're not where you want to be right now. I mean, as, as, this other, as another year starts to wind down, you're like, man, I'm not where I thought I'd be. I'm not where I hoped I'd be. I'm not where I want to be. And I'm not sure I ever will be. And if that's you, maybe you would hear the words of Jesus to your heart. Just hold on. Hang in there. And what I think I mean by that is, is the hold on and hang in there. It's like Jesus wants you to be faithful to God and he wants you to find that God is faithful to you because he is every single time. And he wants you to fight the urge to become bitter or to shut down or to allow your faith to wither or to withdraw. He wants you to keep moving forward one step at a time and trust that God will provide whatever you need day by day, not season by season sometimes. It's day by day. Sometimes it's even if it's a heart, it's step by step. He will provide for you while you struggle and while you suffer. He really wants your present tensions to be the type of suffering that pull you towards God and not the type of suffering that pushes you away from God. And so Jesus says to a group of people 2,000 years ago who feel insecure and uncertain about their future and who've been marginalized because of their faith, he says, listen, I need you to hold on to what you have. I've got you and I've got something for you and I don't want you to lose it. So that's the second image, the image of the crown. Now, the third image is of a pillar, which is super weird. So just hang with me, right? Because you're like, I don't know what he's going to do with the pillar thing. Um, here's how Jesus phrases it. He says, to the one who is victorious. So again, you see the idea of finishing the race. I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. You're like, I don't know if I want that. Hold on. You know, never again will they leave it. You got to understand when Christians in Philadelphia heard Jesus say he wanted them to be like a pillar in the temple of his God, they would immediately have thought of the most significant structures in their city, the temples the temples to those pagan gods. And in the first century, temples were everywhere and they always had pillars. It's just how Roman Greece did things. Check out this coin from the era. You can see on the right side, uh, there's, a, there's a temple there and it's massive, massive pillars. And these pillars, scholars tell us that these pillars were specifically engineered to be earthquake resistant. They were, they were designed to absorb shock and remain standing. Consequently, when an earthquake hit an ancient city, often you'd find the only thing left standing were the pillars of the temple. They were built to last. They were a picture of resilience 
the ability to take a hit and keep standing. And so Jesus says to these people in Philadelphia, people in insecure and uncertain times, he says, listen, you need to know I have plans to make you secure and certain. I want to make you like a pillar in the temple of my God. And, and it even gets better. He says, not only do I make you a pillar in the temple of my God, he says, I will write upon you, them, those who are victorious, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Now, I'm a Bible nerd. When we Bible nerds see something that says like Jesus saying my new name, we go crazy. You're like, what is the new name? I don't even know. So I did some digging. I don't know what it is, but here's what I do know. I don't think that's Jesus' point. His point in saying this seems to be that he is going to put this new name, whatever it is, on his people to mark them as his own. It's another way to affirm their new identity. And this thing about like the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, that image actually shows up much later in the document we call Revelation. It's actually one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. I've read it out loud at literally every memorial service that I have ever officiated. And it records this vision of Jesus' disciple, John, who he's the one that gets the vision for all of what we call Revelation, and he's the one that writes it down. But in a vision sent to him by Jesus, John records that he says, okay, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And he says, I saw the, the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. But it gets better. He says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. He keeps going. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Identity, identity, identity. And he goes, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And then the most beautiful words, he says, he who was seated on the throne said, I and making everything new. I will make everything right one day, as it was intended to be. Peace on all of its axes will one day be restored. That is the promise. And so to these people long ago who are struggling and suffering, Jesus says, listen, I gotta remind you, you have a new home. And this new home is not like your old home. This new home is secure. And this new home is certain. And this new home is a place without death or tears or loss or pain or suffering. I think what Jesus is trying to say to these Christians is that what they've gained through their faith in him, it far eclipses anything that they've lost. And honestly, I think that's what he would say to those of us who are here this morning who are passing, passing through a season of, of faithful suffering. That somehow, like when the final chapter of our story is written and the rewards are given and we arrive at our forever home, that what we've gained will vastly eclipse whatever it is that we've lost. So what does this all mean for us? You know, what are we to take from the message that Jesus sent to the church at Philadelphia? I think for me, it's just a powerful reminder that there's a big difference between suffering and suffering well. And there's a big difference between hurting and hurting well. 
Moreover, like the choices of the heart that we make during these challenging times, our responses, our reactions, our overreactions, those will determine the future direction of our lives and the health of our relationships. So I guess what I want to do as we kind of wrap up is, is just invite those of you who are going through a season of suffering to begin to pray a simple prayer, just God, give me the strength to suffer better. May I find you faithful and may I be faithful in this season of insecurity and instability. And may I trust that the reward you have for me will eclipse what I've lost. And finally, may, may, I, may I come to see the adversity, the challenge in my life as an opportunity to reframe the pain I'm experiencing as an opportunity to grow closer to you. I'm telling you, that's a choice that really does have the potential to change everything for you, for me, and for the people that we love. All right, with that, I'd love to invite you to stand, and I'll close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, I can only imagine uh, the stories, the anxiety, the frustration, the disappointment that walk through the doors of our gathering place this morning for friends that are struggling. I pray that you would remind them how much they are loved, that you are telling a much bigger story, and it is a story that has an incredible ending. Give us strength to suffer well. May our faith grow stronger when life gets harder. And ultimately, may the light of your son Jesus shine through our brokenness and offer hope to our world. But for today, we say thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his death on the cross, his resurrection, and the hope of eternity. We bless you, we honor you, we celebrate you. In the matchless name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said, amen. It's great to be with you, friends. We will see you back here next week for the conclusion of seven. <laughs> <laughs>